Welcome to Starting Nowhere, I'm your host Brandon. Do me a favor and hit the like button, it helps out the channel and I'd really appreciate it. Today, my guest is CJ Lopez. CJ is an Air Force veteran who also had some time as a single mother while serving in the military and who is now transitioning to the civilian sector where she is an author. Please enjoy today's episode. Well, thank you for joining me today, Miss CJ. Why don't you go ahead and tell everybody a little bit about yourself and tell them who you are. Hi, so I'm CJ, just plain and simple CJ. Um, <laughs> I live in Texas, down on the border of Mexico. So if uh, things go too crazy, I can jump over if I need to. Just kidding. I love the United States. Obviously, I spent 20 years in the United States Air Force working in civil engineering as an operations manager, and I loved my time joining uh, places all over the world. After retiring, uh, I decided to become a children's book author. And I did that. I've wrote 11 children's books. And I recently published three what I call hope books. And they're books that help people find hope within themselves to continue along their path. I am happily married to a wonderful man who is ex-army. We won't hold that against him. Just kidding. I will. Again. Uh, I'll you hold can. it against him. Absolutely. <laughs> and, um, and I have two children who are in college who are currently home visiting me and six dogs. So I, I like to say that my six dogs are more of my children than the two that I actually gave birth to. But either way, they're all part of the family. So that's me. Just uh, like I said, simply CJ. So what kind of dogs do you have? Okay, so I have three pit bulls. No, four. Four. Four pit bulls and two <laughs> wiener dogs. Oh, wow. So nice little diverse mix. Now, <laughs> let me ask you a question because I've seen this with a lot of groups of dogs. Like this. Are the small ones the bullies or are they kind of uh, the protected smaller children? Okay, so Elvis the Little Prince. I just wrote a Christmas book about him and we call him the Little Prince because he thinks he owns everything. He is teaching the other ones bad habits. He bullies the other ones. We have uh, one one who just showed up at our house one day and wouldn't leave. And he is the most beautiful. Uh, he has these light eyes and light color. He's a full breed and very stocky. And Elvis tried to fight him when he first came up. And I thought, you will die, dog. What is wrong with you? But yes, uh, Elvis is my uh, short-haired Dotson. So we got him here in Texas, and we have Marco, who is our wired hair Dotson, who we brought from Germany. Outstanding. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I think in my future is probably a wild pack of dogs like that. So right now I just have the one, and I've only had the one for the past uh, almost going on 12 years now. Um, but I, I can totally see that the pack mentality and everything. But having two kids and six dogs at home, and as I hear one uh, chiming in for the podcast, Having six dogs and two kids at home, is, how is the house feeling full right now? Or is it, uh, is it nice? Because I know sometimes when you get that kind of uh, kids off to college feeling, it's nice to have them home. But then at the same time, it can kind of feel cl uh, claustrophobic because you're used to having your space. You know, I didn't know how I was going to feel when my kids left because for 11 years of my Air Force career, I was a single parent because me and their father were married for seven years total. And then we split. And for 11 years, it was just me and those kids. So we did everything together. I didn't have babysitters, nothing. So I we were so close. It was us against the world. You know that there's a famous uh, Rihanna song that says that, you know, if the if the world shut down, it would be us against the world, all other stuff. Anyways. So I was nervous that I wouldn't be able to survive after the kids left. Who am I without my children? And then along came my husband in 2011. Then we got married in 2013. So when they left, 
it was nice. I, I changed both the rooms into offices and started doing my podcasting. I was writing. I wrote four books in one month. And it was great. To, it's great to have them back. But there's so much going on. I've never cooked this much in my life, I don't think. <laughs> like, we stopped cooking, me and the husband. We're like, oh, what do you want to eat? Oh, we'll just pop something in the microwave or just throw something on real quick. But the kids are home. And my son, the day that they got home, tested positive for COVID. So mm. we went into a quick lockdown and isolation. So for two weeks, I was taking this little roller tray back to his area and dropping off three meals a day like I was a hospital nurse, which thank God for them because I could have never made it because I barely made it through those two weeks. So mm -hmm. it's extremely busy in the house, um, but I'm still getting my naps in. <laughs> very true, very true. As you, uh, as we talked about a little bit before we got started, you had a yeah. good nap today, getting you ready mm -hmm. for the podcast. So I appreciate mm -hmm. you getting your energy up for that. <laughs> so that's very interesting. So your son was diagnosed with COVID. Um, yeah right when you said right when he got home and everything. So you guys got quarantined in place, it sounds like. And I've heard a couple of stories mm -hmm. like that. So uh, if I may, and if you if I need to, I can go back and cut this out later. But yeah. did anyone else in the house end up uh, getting positive as well? Or were you able to contain it in time, you think? Yeah, we were able to contain it. You know, I, I give glory all to God. I wear my rosary every single day. I'm not Catholic. I'm not I don't have a religion. I'm faithful, if that makes mm -hmm. any sense. Um, but I have certain things that I do believe in. A rosary is one of them. My husband got me this for my birthday. But, um, you know, I prayed on it every single day. We lit candles. We I picked him up from the bus station, him and his sister. And I told them both since they had been traveling from college because they go to the same college that I wanted them to keep their masks on because I'm high risk with uh, multiple illnesses that I have. So they wore their masks. They got in at five o'clock in the morning. And as soon as they woke up, they went to the doctor and they got tested and that's when he came back positive. So because they went from wearing their masks straight, you know, coming near me, wearing their masks straight into their bedrooms, we didn't even talk and then straight to the doctor's office and straight in isolation. I think that was one of the key factors to helping us. And I didn't even hug my son had been in my son and my daughter had been in my house for two weeks before I had even hugged them hmm. because of I... the isolation. And it was hard, but we knew that for the long term, it was going to be the smartest outcome because they're young. They both do track, cross country. My son plays basketball as well. You know, they're fit. Me, I'm not. I have multiple health issues. And I just didn't want them to ever feel that they did something wrong and their mother wasn't here anymore. So I made all the decisions and said, this is what we're going to do. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that it was effective. And also, I'm glad to hear that you uh, had that kind of mindset, because I think sometimes when we have that emotional connection to people, we kind of let that change the way we, we view what we should and shouldn't be doing with some of these things. And obviously, that's one of the, been one of the big issues with uh, COVID-19 and everything. So I'm, I'm very thankful that you, excuse me, that you were able to uh, control that within your own household, because talk about close quarters. Yeah. And, you know, I... I've had to have a very strong mindset from the very beginning because when, when I became a single parent, it was me and those kids and I had to be connected yet a little disconnected because when you're in the military, you have to leave a lot. Mm -hmm. So I had to teach them to be independent and, and know that at any moment they could be without their mother. And a lot of people will think that, well, how could you ever 
you know, let your kid think that they could be without you. Well, that's the reality of the military. You know yourself by serving for your 11 years that our reality sometimes is that you may not come home. You know, God granted me a wonderful career, 20 years, um, and I did not get shot at. I did not deal with some of the, the hardships that a lot of people dealt with. But I never knew if that would be a possibility. So I raised them and to the point where I would go on deployments and they would be with my mom and dad before my husband came in the picture and they would be out playing. And my mom and dad would say, your mom's on the phone. They're like, well, we'll talk to her next time we're playing right now. And that would crush me as a parent. But I also did not force them to get on the phone because I wanted them to have their life. I didn't want them to feel obligated to talk to me. It had to come from a place of love. So, and, and I think that we have a great relationship. They tell me, 99% 99% of everything that's going on in their life, you know, they call me whenever they need something, me and my husband as well. So well, that's excellent. So I wanted to kind of ask you a little bit more about that experience uh, in the military at large, but also just excuse me, specifically as a single parent in the military, because as you kind of alluded to, uh, I have an Air Force background as well. And I know that, like you said, sometimes you're supposed to be home at four. Well, now you've got to stay late or there's an exercise or base lockdown or whatever the situation might be. So what were some of the unique challenges you had to go through trying to maintain both your status as a mother and your status as an airman? You know, I had to make some hard decisions about my career and the ability to excel in my career and put my kids first a lot of times. And there are there are people that can balance the two and still excel and still have a great relationship. But for me, I put my kids above my career without a question every single time. Uh, I remember I came home from Kosovo and I had just got to my father's house and I was watching my son play uh, practice football. And I was so excited because I he had started football before I had even gotten home. So this is my first time watching him play football. And I got a call from uh, someone in a command position wanted me to go teach a course in Georgia for two weeks because of my skill set. And I said, I just got home from a six month deployment. And they said, but this is something that is going to be great for your career because I knew them from a past base. And I said, I understand, but I, I can't tell them bye again. I, I, I have to choose them right now. Um, and they asked me to think about it and they called them the next day. And when I called them the next day, I, I told them the same thing. And it was gut-wrenching because I knew that that was letting everybody know that I would put my children before the Air Force every single time. And it, and it was hard, but I got, I picked up my bags and went whenever I had to deploy. Um, but, but being torn between the two was very hard. And when it came to retire, that was probably the hardest one. Wow. That's, that's really crazy. I I know that there's a lot of situations like that where the military asks you to do what I would consider extraordinary things. You know, um, some similar to that, though, even though you just got back looking at you immediately for another quick turnaround. Um, so I, I'm glad that you had the the strength to do that. It is unfortunate that you do kind of have to make those choices a lot of times in the military between your family or your lo- uh, personal responsibilities and your military responsibilities and your career can suffer because of that. Because like you said, while there is this is unofficial, the, you won't really see this written anywhere. Um the path through promotion for the military is the test, but there's a lot of help you can get by doing certain special duties when, you know, whether it be an MTI or an MTL or other things like that. And I actually, they started doing that now. I don't know when you got out, but uh, they now have, 
I forget what they called it because they started it like not long before I separated, but where the the special job yeah. program where they basically force you into those positions now, and then it does actually help your career in meaningful ways that way. So, you know, and it's funny because I applied to be an MTL. I was pregnant with my daughter. I applied to be an MTL. I got accepted, and they were trying to find me a job. And then they came back and they told me that uh, they couldn't send me anywhere because at the time the kid's father had a code on him that he couldn't go to another base until he got his citizenship. So MTL down the tubes. Um, I applied to be an MTI, got accepted and my career field manager wouldn't release me. I applied uh, to be in um, AMT at the Academy. I got uh, accepted and I got released from my career field and I got orders to Colorado and I was so excited. And then two weeks later, I got a letter or not a letter, but an email saying my assignment was canceled. And at that time I was at a small GSU geographically separated unit, a small little unit for those folks that don't know. I know, you know, mm. <laughs> and um, so I went to the base chief. That's how small it was. And I said, chief, I was a E6 at the time. I said, chief, uh, they just, cancel my assignment didn't tell me what was going on can you find out i really want to go be an amt it was basically like a first sergeant for the academy cadets keeping them um good to go and and helping them learn about the enlisted ranks and come to find out that my career field advisor had been on leave and somebody who was standing in released me and they wouldn't release me from my career field because of my skill set that i had so right around, so all of that, so three different times, I couldn't go and do extra duties to help my career, which also would have kept me home longer with my children. But then right around the time they were doing DSDs, which is the developmental special duties, which will push you outside of your career field, it was time for me to retire. So I look at it like everything happens for a reason. And I I'm completely blessed for the things I was able to learn while I was in. I went down to San Antonio and was able to write the um, skill, the skill SKT portion of the promotion testing. Oh, wow. So, That's awesome. so for me, I'm like, you know, there was some moments in my career where I had some leadership that if I saw today, I'm a civilian, I'd probably punch in the face. And then I have other <laughs> leadership. I have other leadership that I still talk to today and I thank them for their grace because uh, there were times where I had to leave an exercise. I had to leave early from work when everyone else was working until eight, nine o'clock at night because mm -hmm. I was a single parent. And when I was going through my divorce, you know, there were, there were a few people that helped me out. There were others that made it worse, but mm -hmm. there were some people that helped me out. So what they don't know who, who puts up with the most, those kids did. Um, they were three and they were two and no one and three years old getting up at four o'clock in the morning to be dropped off at the CDC and not being picked up till seven o'clock at night and then rush through dinner and bath and bed for 14 days straight in Okinawa, Japan, because we're going through an exercise in a typhoon and then mom is working the control center through all of it. You know, I mean, they're, you know, so they do what they do. So, so really quick, just uh, again, I know what you're talking about, but I wanted to clarify for everybody else. She's not dropping her her kids off at the Communicable Disease Center. Uh, it's the Child, Deve Child Development Center, also known as the CDC to military people, because obviously in the COVID-19 world, we don't want people thinking you were dropping no. your kids off every day at the CDC no. to be tested on or anything. So. I don't get to often talk to another military person that understands yeah. what I say. So I'm like getting all like 
Giddish and going, I could say just regular stuff without explaining. Yeah. So thank you for explaining for me. <laughs> no, I completely understand. And to that end, that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about a little bit too, because I don't think a lot of people may understand what they, what you mean when you wrote the SKT. So the SKT, I don't, I don't know what that acronym actually stands for. A skill knowledge training or something like that. I think, uh, but the sorry, skills knowledge test. Okay, test. Thank you. So the SKT is literally half of the promotion test that you'll take. You'll take a uh, promotion test on what's called the PDG or I think it's still a PG, it might be changed now, but a professional development guide, which is your general Air Force knowledge, who got to, uh, who William Pittsburgh or uh, Pittsburgh was and all that type of stuff. And then you have your SKT portion, which is specific to your actual career field. So you're talking right now, or you're listening to a person who literally wrote the book for promotion on how uh, people could get ahead and everything like that. So that's really, really cool. I've never actually met somebody who was involved in writing those things. Uh, I know there's a lot of people right now who were in your career field who hated you because nobody likes the people who write the SKTs. <laughs> I didn't like them either. And when I went down there to write those SKTs, that is such an amazing process. I was like, wow, I thought these people didn't know what they were doing, but really they do because they actually sit, there's two E7s that sit together with a test psychologist and there's an actual test psychologist and you sit down and you think about what is the most important things within your career field. And I loved it. And that test, because they, they change the test every couple of years. Mm -hmm. So every two years you're getting two new E sevens to write a new test. So the test that we wrote me and the other E seven people tested on it for two years. That's awesome. And, and yeah. so I'll make an admission now. I don't think I've ever said this on the podcast before, but when I made E5, which is the rank that I ended up separating at uh, Staff Sergeant, um, I did PDG only because my career flood had been deleted. So there were no SKTs to test on, <laughs> you know, yeah. so I only had the PDG. So I made staff as a PDG only. Uh, so I only did SKT tests like once or twice. And I never mm -hmm. actually tried because by then I knew I was separating and I didn't really care to study because I'm like, I'm not going to make rank and take it from somebody else and only wear it for like a month or something like that. And, you know, and so I was like, I'm not even going to pay attention. So I never had to fully do an SKT test where I actually cared about it. So uh, I, I can't yeah. say too much about the, the SKTs for my final career field, which was contracting. Okay. You did contracting. We dealt with contracting a lot and I, I give it to the contracting folks because man, when we went down to, we went to Oman in 2010 and we had to set up a base mm -hmm. out of nothing. Yeah. There was just a few, few, um, buildings there and we had to put up our own tents to sleep in and our contracting guys, it was like right next to our hip. You know, I mean, it was funny because we get there and the commander says, if you need this, go to Sergeant. At the time, I had a different last name and they couldn't say it. So they would say Sergeant A, go to Sergeant A. If you need this, go to Sergeant A. And I'm sitting here thinking, I have no idea what he's talking about, but I guess I'm going to figure it out. But it was a contracting guys that I was like, hey, how do we get this? How do we do this? Yeah. So I give it to those contracting guys. Well, and I think that's the thing with the, the career field, uh, contracting career field, rather, um, is that people either hate you or love you. Like whenever you're at an operational status of contracting, you're just trying to get things done. And you're usually they feel like you're the one who's slowing down the process. They hate you. But if you're going to try to set up a base or you're going somewhere uh, overseas yeah. in general into a deployed location where you need to get things done, they love their contracting folks. And that's just uh, the kind of duality of that mm -hmm. position is like they either hate you or love you because your process either gets things done or keeps things from getting done in their opinion. 
Yeah. And the only thing that it keeps from getting done is from us getting screwed for lack of better words, Mm -hmm. because when, when it takes a long time, it's all the I's and the T's and all the nitpicky things to make sure that the best contract and the best interest of the air force is happening, not for the other person, but for the air force. And I've, I've sat in a lot of those meetings we did, I did contract uh, specialist stuff for civil engineering. We're looking at all their major uh, top three contracts, base uh, waste and, um, what was the other one? Uh, custodial yeah. and grounds maintenance. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. So it sounds so. like you might've been a core. Well, I wasn't the core. Um, I The cores worked for me. So I had to, oh, okay, in okay. order to understand what they did. So when I sat in a meeting and the bosses asked me questions, I sat with the cores and I said, okay, teach me your job. So I sat in a lot of those meetings to learn a lot of stuff because I believed as a leader, if you don't know what your people do, Mm-hmm. Uh, and at least a concept and, and literally get in the weeds with them, then you can't really lead them. Exactly. I mean, I mean, I, I trust, but I verify, mm-hmm. I trusted my people. Like when my core told me, because I worked with her day in and day out on contracts, when she told me something and I, I believed her because I knew that she knew what she was doing. Um, but that was because I was very close with all of them. I believed in having an authentic conversation with them and being, CJ with them versus Master Sergeant who, you know, so-and-so. So it that's just how I worked. Gotcha. So just for everybody again, and I did it to myself this time, CORE is a contracting officer representative. Essentially, <laughs> they're the person who helps represent the contracting officer's interest in the actual squadron, usually CE, uh, because we do a civil engineering, that is. Uh, we do a lot of contracts with them, like she said, for grounds maintenance, uh, for custodial and all those type of things. And what's funny is because nobody really thinks about this, but custodial is one of the larger contracts we do for a lot of bases because they're there 365 days, you know, going around to multiple buildings all over the base. And it's actually huge. And I set up one, uh, I did one for, for LUD um, that was like something like in the top five custodial contracts in the entirety of the air force or whatever. So I don't remember how much it ended up being 20 million or something like that overall, but it's just insane. The, uh, the amount that goes into those things you're looking at at the end of it, you're just like, they're just janitors, you know, or custodial uh, people, (laughs) but it's a lot. There's a lot that goes through that when you're talking about negotiating all that out. Yeah, absolutely. And just one base is two point something million. Mm -hmm. And what people don't understand is those contracts are, you know, the waste management, the the grounds maintenance and the custodial, I work at a university and I work in the the department that deals with those those in those individuals as well. And also when COVID hit, who was still working? Your trash still had to be picked up mm-hmm. at your house. Your custodial workers at the university were your frontline workers. You know, and those were all contracts. So contracts are extremely important. Yeah. So that's where the money's at, everybody. If you go on the outside, <laughs> you get into that world and learn that world and become an expert at that world, that's where your money's at. <laughs> it is one of the better transferable skills, I'll say, from uh, from the active duty or from the military in general, even if you're doing reserves, uh, to the civilian sector, the private sector. I, th- I do agree with that. I That's one of the reasons I chose it, because I knew I was doing one more enlistment and I wanted to get something that I could transfer over if I chose to get out at, at that time. Um, and so that's why I chose contracting. And then it, it ended up being a great decision for me. So I would 100% agree with everything you just said. Yeah. And my job transferred over as well into the university world. So if you work for the, an Air Force installation and you go into a university, work for a university or community college, uh, 
the the constructs are almost identical in the facilities world so even in the contracting world it's almost identical so anybody that's trying to transfer some skills over if you look at a support standpoint it's almost identical um the the structure of the the entity itself so uh, it was highly transferable over we actually have a, a team of air force civil engineers who are on the listserv together that share across the United States in the universities, all the information. That's awesome. I always love about hearing about the transferable skills that the military uh, members actually found because you never know what is going to transfer and who's been successful at translating that to the civilian sector. Because sometimes we have a lot of skills that I think would transfer to a lot of different things, but because people don't know what they're reading when they read a resume, they don't recognize that it does. And so I'm always uh, excited when I hear about somebody who's able to take what they did in the military, particularly somebody like yourself who did it for 20 years. You know, that's a wealth of experience that you have there. And thankfully, someone else saw that as well. Yeah, no, it wasn't easy, though. I won't lie. Um, it, it will depend on your location. I'll, I'll give you this. When I retired, I, I was hired for a job and it read one way. But what I ended up doing was totally different than what it read. And it was at a local <laughs> community college. It was basically events. It was doing events, which was what I mean, I did that all the time um, on my free time and through all my volunteerism in the Air Force. But it wasn't my job skill, mm -hmm. what I'd done for 20 years. And I'd always said when I retire, I didn't want to be in a leadership role. I was tired of taking care of people. I was I was after 20 years, I was exhausted. There was a lot that I had done in 20 years and I just wanted to work. I just wanted to work and I wanted to hang out with people and I wanted to be able to connect with people a way that I couldn't connect in the military because there's always this kind of wall that you have to have whenever you're a, a certain type of wall, not like a whole wall. So when I, when I transferred over to the civilian world, I left on a Thursday and I started to work at my civilian job on a Monday. And that was... I filled out over a hundred applications. That was the only callback that I got. Mm. And that was the only job that I got. I had actually got my bachelor's in psychology and I went and got my certification to teach special education. And I filled out applications for all the way up to an hour away from where I was retiring and could not get hired on as a school teacher. So I took this job thinking, oh, well, it, it's what I did in the Air Force, even though I didn't want to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, and I ended up, you know, doing events for two years and realized I, I don't want to do events. So I went seeking for a job. I said, well, the only, I can't get, I still sought after for those two years to get into teaching because that's what I wanted to do. Still couldn't get hired in as a teacher because of my location there. And again, location, had I been in another location, I could have gotten hired, but because I'm in a 95% Hispanic down here. Mm -hmm. And you have to know Spanish in almost all of the uh, jobs, or they at least prefer it. So I didn't have any of those skills. And then I got a job at the university, but that's five hours away from my home. Mm -hmm. So for a year, I worked up there five hours away. So yes, you can transfer, but if you know where you're going to retire already, look for the jobs to make sure they're there or train for a job that is a, in abundance in your location mm -hmm. because I thought teaching is in abundance at my location. We're in an underprivileged area. They need a lot of teachers, but I didn't take into consideration the, the skill of speaking Spanish. Yeah. And I think what you said there is something that I try to tell 
all the people that I talked to who are considering separating from the military. Plan all the aspects of it. You know, one of the important one being the location you plan to go to. Don't just go somewhere because it's either home for you or because you want to live there, or whatever it is. What excuse me, whatever else it is, you have to make sure that your skill set is going to transfer to a job there, and that you're set up to actually live there and not just kind of pass through there. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't necessarily take into consideration. So I hear about people who had a great career in the military and learned all these skills and did all these things, and then they go back home and now they end up having, again. There's nothing wrong with what I'm the jobs I'm about to say. I'm just saying from coming from where they were, it's a little bit of a step down. Yeah. But then they end up working, you know, in retail or they end up working at a restaurant or something like that because that's all they can get. And I think that just goes mm -hmm. to show you have to plan it the same as you would plan a movie for a civilian. You know, no, I don't think there's a lot of civilians who are just packing up and moving across the country and hoping they'll figure it out. You have to plan your move and make sure that you either have a job already lined up or that you know you can get one in relative short order because you have a skill set that's really important to an industry there. Yeah, and, and I thought I had it all figured out. I, I had a job waiting on me when I retired. Uh, I was two months away from retiring. I had already accepted the job. I was leaving on a Thursday, starting my job on a Wednesday. And for those two years, I worked my tail off. And, and I, I, I tell you, the group that I worked with are phenomenal. I'm still in touch with them today. They will forever be a part of my family because I they were just amazing individuals. However, um, I went into a deep depression and my anxiety got even worse than it was in the military. Um, and I, there, I remember the first spring break, I retired in January 2017. And by that April, I had was off for spring break for two weeks. And I laid in bed and didn't get out of bed for that two weeks. Why my husband and his father and their friend enclosed my back porch. I just laid in bed for two weeks. I just thought, this is it. Like, this is, this is it. Like, I'm, I'm just somebody's gopher now. I'm just somebody's something. I mean, I had lost my whole identity because I had done 20 years. I was 19 years old when I joined and 39 years old now. And I had, I felt like I had nothing, even though I had my family around me and I had retired so I could be with them. I just felt like I had nothing left to do anymore. And that, that put me in a really bad spot for a long time. And I kind of lashed out a little bit and got a little bit grumpy with people, a little, a little short fused and stuff and end up having to go to the VA and, and talk to some folks and, and get some help from them in order to deal with it. And then I realized that I, I had to switch jobs in order. I actually quit. I, I stopped working. I said, I've got to, I've got to work on me. And I did stop working for two months. Um, I, I put on my two week notice and walked away for two months. Um, and that's when I went on this whole journey and I, I found out that my, my Zen place is when I can write and mm -hmm. I just started writing and I haven't stopped. Well, and so I think that's one of the reasons, at least for me, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but one of the reasons that I ended up leaving the military was to take those kind of choices for myself, that I wouldn't be mm -hmm. locked into a unit or a base or a location that would ultimately make me unhappy or depressed or any of those type of things, you know, because I think that's one of the downsides to the military lifestyles that a lot of your experience is completely dependent upon who's in your unit. And if you have yeah. a good unit, you could be stationed anywhere and it won't really matter that much because you, you love each other and you hang out with each other outside of work and everything's great, but you can go to a big city and have uh, the place that you should love. Um, and then you have a bad unit and it'll ruin your life. And so 
but you can't do anything about it. You know, you can't really transfer out. You can't do a lot of these things uh, that won't be detrimental to your career. However, when you cross over to the civilian sector, um, going through something like what you went through, you're able to leave that because you know what's what's best for you. And so I think that's one of the best things about being uh, in the civilian sector. But also, I think the other side of that is what you said, too, is that you are actually willing and able to go and talk to somebody and get some help with that. And that's another thing that obviously is a big uh a big issue in the military today has been for pretty much in the military's entire existence, but particularly today with, uh, you know, 22 a day uh, veterans are estimated to take their life. And so that is part of what we're talking about there is when you are able to go and get help and you're able to talk to somebody and it takes that kind of in, that first step with inside yourself to go realize you need to go do that. I support anybody who does that civilian or, uh, you know, military, military vet. I think it's really important that we're really coming around to what mental health means and we're we're spreading out that. So I'm very glad there was a good VA near you because that is not always the case either. Yeah, you know, it, it wasn't easy. Um, there was times that I wanted to talk to somebody in the military and um, that just the it, for me on the inside, the help just wasn't there. Mm-hmm. I would go talk to somebody and then I would want to have a follow up appointment with them and well, that you have to have it with somebody else because that person isn't available and me being a very, um, not closed off, but I don't want to talk to everybody. I need to talk to one person and, and build a relationship. It's rapport building. You know, you have to build those those ties to people. That's why I studied psychology was to help understand a lot of things so that I could, you know, kind of talk myself off of a wire for lack of better words. Mm-hmm. But I just... I, I tried so many times to go and talk to somebody when I was active duty and it just wasn't readily available for lack of better words. As many times as it says, Hey, go do this. Hey, go do that. It just isn't there. And I even had at one point I w- we were in an exercise and we were in mop four, which is full gear mask, everything. I mean, mop four means anything you can put on your back, they're going to put on you. Right. And I, they, they said incoming. So we all jump underneath our tables and I had a panic attack because I was under so much stress uh, going through the divorce and becoming a single parent for the first time and the abuse that I was going through. And I had a panic attack, so I had to pull my mask up just a little bit just to catch my breath. And um, my chief jumped underneath the desk on me and he said, put your effing mask back on before I kick you out of my Air Force. And that literally was like, are you serious? I put my mask back on and um, after the attack was over, he took me outside him and the first sergeant and and he had a one-on-one with me and a heartfelt conversation he said i said that he goes because i know you and i know you're not a quitter he goes if i would have sat there and said anything nice to you you would have started crying underneath that desk and embarrassed yourself he goes but i told you that you put your mask back on and you got through it he goes now i want to take you and let you talk to somebody because i think you really need to and and that was the only time anybody had ever ever taken a moment to see everything that I had on my plate and everything that I was going through and actually cared enough to um, suggest that I needed to talk to somebody. But even when I did go and talk to somebody, um, they were like, oh, yeah, I just think you're going through a hard time. You don't really need to come back. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that was a basic psychologist. I was like, okay, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> and that that is a very big uh, downside, I feel, to a lot of the way that the military still treats those things. And again, I want to be clear, I, I am very positive on the steps the military has taken, because here's the thing. Yeah. You have, we have to understand, and not you, we, but the royal we, I guess, the bigger uh, population. The military 
is an organization that is your job and your entire support system. So there's going to be some missteps. But here's what I will say. They do a heck of a lot better supporting their people than, say, you know, McDonald's or Target or uh, Goldman Sachs or any of these places will because it's not their responsibility. They kind of just throw you to the wolves. Like if you're having too bad of a day, they may end up just firing you. Well, the military, they're going to try to get you back and get you working and everything like that. They just don't always do the best of jobs at it. But they're constantly trying. And for that, I respect. I respect the effort. But like you said, those are the types of situations that you find yourselves in where you're in a weird situation anyways. So I don't know the acronym for this one. I didn't know it when I was in. I never know. MOP, uh, some, oh, I have no idea. But it, like you were saying, MOP essentially is all your protective equipment. You're going to put on your gas mask. You're going to put on uh, the overcoat and the boots. And it's just it's supposed to be used when you're there. Some kind of either radioactive fallout, biological weapons been used or something like that. And so we have different levels of MOP 0, 1, 2, 3, and 4. And uh, MOP 4, as she was saying, is where you put on everything. You're putting your gas mask, you're putting on these cotton gloves and the rubber gloves over them. You're putting on the over boots over your regular boots. You're putting on the pants. It's just, <laughs> it's hot. It's uncomfortable. It's ridiculous uh, to say the least. So even if you're not going through a hard time, putting on MOP 4 is an unenjoyable experience. But when you are going through a little bit of a personal challenge, putting on MOP 4, I could see how that would be the point where you're like, I just know, just know to all of this. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I'm not saying that they, it was a horrible um, thing, what they did and they weren't there for me. Cause I will, mm. I will say that I would not be where I am today had it not been for the United States Air Force. I, I know that for sure. I love every moment that I was in there, even the hard times, because I learned how to be the leader I was because of the good and the bad leaders that came before me. Mm-hmm. I learned so much about who I was. I learned how to be a mother <laughs> to my children because of the Air Force. I learned how to be an individual. I learned who I learned my identity in there. I was 19 when I joined out of the inner city of Indianapolis, Indiana. And I thought, could nobody whoop me? I was going to whoop the world, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I learned real quick, you better shut up and sit down, girl, because you don't know what's <laughs> going on. And I did. And I, I grew up and they raised me. They raised me to be who I am. And I am so thankful every single day because I retired at 39 years old. And from 39 years old until the day I no longer take my breath, I will get a paycheck. I will have medical care. My children have medical care while they're in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, my husband, if I go before my husband, he'll get my retirement check. He'll have medical care. The things that they have given me and will give me for the rest of my life, I will never be able to repay them. So it outweighs anything that I ever had a bad feeling about or didn't get my way about because sometimes I'm a little spoiled (laughs) or felt that they missed the mark for lack of better words. Because if you look at them, you know, I work at a university, I worked at a community college, I worked at fast food before I joined. I don't know any entity and there may be some out there. I haven't worked everywhere. Not yet. You never know. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know any place that takes care of their people the way they do. and, And I'll forever be thankful for them. Absolutely. And that's the same thing I said, even though it came to a point where I knew that the military was no longer where I needed to be or wanted to be. I still look back on that time fondly. I am very thankful for all that type of stuff that they gave me. And to your to your point, if I had stayed in, I would have about four more years until I retired. So I came in, uh, I was 19, a month for my 20th birthday. And I was so I'm right there with you on that, that kind of path and everything. When what you said there is something else that I meant to comment on before, uh, another struggle that I think a lot of people aren't prepared for when they leave the military, whether through separation or retirement, um, is how much of your identity is wrapped up in being a military person. 
And so when you're no longer a military person, when you don't ha either have that sense of camaraderie, when you're not putting on the uniform, when you're not calling yourself airman, so-and-so, sergeant, so-and-so, you know, master sergeant, whatever your rank is, so-and-so, uh, you're it really changes how you see yourself. And that I've seen a lot of people go through that depression as well, because now they don't have that mission anymore. They don't have that North star driving them to everything they do. And they have a lot of this freedom, which sounds good in theory until you actually have it. And now you are trying to figure out what you're doing. You've never done that before. So now, and you're not talking about somebody who's like 20, we're all figuring out at 20 years old, no matter if you're in the military or not. But now if you're 35, you're 39, you're 28, whatever your age you are, uh, when you get out of the military, now you have to try to reinvent yourself again. And I think that's really hard for a lot of people to do. And I think a lot of people undervalue what that really means on a personal level. And so that's another piece of advice I always try to give people is like, make sure you understand what that means, what that's going to feel like, and allow yourself to feel some, uh, feel that a little bit. Don't try to run from it because running from emotions doesn't necessarily work that well. I've tried, <laughs> but you have to be prepared for what that means that you're no longer, uh, you know, like I said, airman, sergeant or whatever, so-and-so you have to be just for me, Brandon and becoming Brandon was really weird. Hearing people call me by my first name still doesn't feel right because I went through most of my formative adult years with people calling me by my last name. So it's just strange to this day. And it's to the point where I'm like, I don't even feel connected to that name. You know, that doesn't feel like who I am. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and that's crazy uh, that you said that because I, um, I go by CJ now. Mm -hmm. Um, but my name is Christina. And I, I literally started going by CJ about a year ago when I felt that I truly stepped into my own identity outside of who I had been my whole entire life, which was somebody's sister, somebody's mother, somebody's wife, somebody's granddaughter, mm -hmm. somebody's supervisor, somebody's this, somebody that, Master Sergeant Lopez, this, that, or the other. And I was like, you know what? I stripped all that away. I had a lot of mo time to myself the year that I worked up um, closer to the university. Now I'm working at the university from home and I stripped all of that away and I learned so much about myself and who I am and who I wanted to be and who I am at the core of me. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what? I'm CJ. I'm not anything other than me. And I had to uh, find my identity and it was hard. And there was a lot of, there's a lot of crying. I mean, I cry anyways, you know, it don't take much. So, I mean, there was a lot of crying. <laughs> and so, yeah, and, and I, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, so in the process of defining who CJ is slash was, uh, you found yourself as an author, and that's kind of one of the hyphenates you have now is author. So so tell me a little bit more about that. How, how did the idea to start writing uh, children's books come about, and how did you get started in that? What was, like, your motivation? Yeah, so I wanted to write stories since I was, I think it was the seventh grade, and one of the things I had to do was write a short story for an assignment, right? I think we all did that in middle school. And my teacher said, this is good. And it was the first time in my life anyone said anything positive to me, you know, said that something that I had done was good. And it made me feel good about myself. And I remembered that throughout my whole rest of my life. And so I said, I always wanted to do it. I wanted to do it. So the thought pondered in the back of my head, it kept pondering, it kept getting stronger and stronger when I married my husband. And it just got stronger and stronger as I spoke it to him and told him of my dreams. And he has been one of my biggest supporters through everything I've done since we've gotten together. I mean, we met in 2006, but we didn't start dating until 2011, married in 2013. So we've got a long history. And and then finally, I just wrote it and I illustrated it and I edited it and I put it up there and 
It is the most atrocious book you will ever see. But on my 40th birthday, I became a published author of my first children's book. And I just said, I loved it. So it's my Roscoe and Charlie series. And the reason why I started with that is because our dogs traveled the world with us. We took our first wiener dog, uh, Hershey, God bless his soul, with us. He was my husband's dog before we got together. We took him to Germany with us and we bought Marco in Germany. And then they both came back to the United States with us. And every time we went somewhere in Germany, they went with us. And I always would make up these little stories about what they were saying in their head and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I said, I want to write a book about Roscoe and Charlie and their adventures around the world. So I did. And Roscoe, the R is for my husband's name, Rudy. And Charlie C is for my name. And it was basically the places that we had been but through the dog's eyes, the adventures that they would go on, these whimsical adventures. So I wrote four books in the Roscoe and Charlie series. And then I just kept going because I found that as I sit down and I write, everything seems okay. The world fades away. I close my eyes. I go into the scene of the story and I'm inside it watching it happen and unfold. And I just, it just flows out of me. And it's the greatest thing I ever did. That's awesome. I'm very, uh, first of all, congratulations on all the books and all the uh, published books you, you have. That's really awesome. Um, so wh why children's books? Why do you think that was where you started? You know, I, I love kids. I really do. Now, I don't want any grandchildren anytime soon. I hope they're listening over there in the living room. <laughs> um, but I started with the children's books because of how I see the lessons in what the dogs would do mm. in their hearts and they always wanted to save the world. So that's how it got me writing. So it, there's a lesson in every single book. Every single book is about a real person in my life. It's about a lesson in the, in my life as well. Um, if you see the yellow book, where's my finger going? The yellow book here, Leo's mm -hmm. big adventure. That one I wrote because I had the pleasure of working with a mother whose son was going through cancer. Mm -hmm. And I wrote that book and it was his big adventure. And the adventure is basically how he can do anything he wants to do. If he just tries, no matter what he's going through, he's the runt of the litter. The dog is in the book, mm -hmm. but he became the hero in the end. So, I mean, each of my books were like that. And then I wrote Paw Paul's Recliner series here. I'm, I just finished a second book in that series. And that's about my dad and all of his grandchildren and the lessons that he teaches them. And that's about carrying on a legacy of being with your family and teaching lessons to each of the kids and sharing those memories with them. So that's how that started with me. That's incredible. That's really awesome. So again, congratulations on uh, moving through the series like that, because I feel like a lot of people who once get that taste, they just write the one and then they kind of just, well, I did that. I can move on. So to continue on with it, I think is what's truly impressive. And as part of that transition, excuse me, uh, transformation that you're going through, you said you've also started going into what you're calling like a hope series. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? So in 2019, me and my sister started the Sister Sister Live show, and it just started with two sisters wanting to connect again, because when we were children, we were thick as thieves. And then around when I was 10 years old, we started splitting apart, and then I left for the Air Force at 19. Mm. So we started that show, and we started just talking to each other, and it's turned into a million and one different things. But through it, we wanted to tell her story, because she started um, her life of addiction around the age of 15 when she had her first child. So we wrote her story of how she came out of the very thing that was supposed to take her down. How do you survive something that left you on the streets 
basically for no pun intended, because there's, you know, I'm, I'm saying something that's already coined out there, but naked and afraid, mm-hmm. right? What, how do you survive those type of things? So we wrote a book in an addict's journey home, the tale of two sisters. And from that, it told, I, I read that and it was so powerful reading those words and listening to her story because I had never heard her whole story and the things that she went through, through her addiction. I wanted to write more. I wanted to write my story as well and, and how I went from this, you know, redhead, freckle face girl that was picked on. And my nickname was Fred from Drop Dead Fred because they said I was that ugly when I was a little kid and and all the things that I'd went through and um, the emotional abuse and, and things in my military career and how nothing ever. I mean, it phased me, but I still have a positive outcome. And then I said, you know what, there's more to this than me and my sister, just so much more. So I invited nine other ladies to go into a book with us called Hold On To Your Soul. And I wanted them to write a short snippet of their story so that we could put that book out into the world and show everybody that the very thing that is meant to take you down can now become your glory. It can become the very thing that turns you into the phenomenal human being that you are meant to be. So we wrote Hold On To Your Soul in November and released it in December. We, we took a month and we wrote that book and that, and Summer Raven, which is my story that was released in November as well. And I, I'm working on a 2021 project called heaven has mail. I've invited anybody that wants to write a letter to, to heaven, somebody they've lost. If the premise is, if you could write a letter and know that the person in heaven would get it, is there something in particular you would say to them? And it's a healing journey. Mm-hmm. And I've already had one letter, two letters sent to me. And, and they told me, I didn't realize that I, there was so many things I wanted to say to this person until I wrote that letter. So it's a healing journey. So Heaven Has Mail will be released by Thanksgiving of 2021. And it's for anyone that wants to heal through writing a letter to somebody, whatever you have to say to them. And we're going to put it in the book. We're going to type up the letter. Then we'll have a picture of you in the letter, as well as the person that you've lost and something about them. Because even though they're not here anymore, they're still very much a part of this world. So that I want to continue on those hope series in connection with our Sister Sister live show, because that's what we do on the show is we bring hope. And when you have nowhere else to go, we want to give you a place to go. And that's incredible. And that's very valuable work, because as we talked about before, um, part of the the struggles that people go through can lead to some some really dark places. And the way yeah. one of the things I try to keep in mind is that whatever you're going through is going to lead you somewhere and if it's not a positive place it can be a dark place and so you have to kind of make sure that you're you're protecting yourself in some ways and you're allowing yourself to do things that make uh help you feel better. And what I'm seeing through what you're talking about and what I've seen through a lot of the things that people do is some form of expression really helps. It's some form of catharsis. You know, it helps them get that out, what they're holding on to inside. So my, uh, I'm mixed. My white side is Irish. So Irish people have a tendency to just hold everything in and not really release it. And that's not necessarily the healthiest thing in the world. And so expressing things is not exactly what uh, comes naturally to me a lot of times. But I find that doing things like this or doing, like I said, writing or whatever else it is, that form of expression can help a lot of times get that... uh, that kind of emotion out and allow you to really clarify what you're feeling and what you're thinking about these type of things. So I think it's awesome that you're having people write in the letters because I think you can write a book and help the people who read it, 
or you can write a book that helps the people who wrote it and the people who read it. And I think that's a really cool project that you're involved in. So I'm very, very excited to see that. So you definitely got to send me an email. I'll try to pin something in my calendar to remind me to circle back with you on that to see if it does come out uh, before Thanksgiving. The sooner, the better. But I understand that good work takes time. So uh, how long usually do you put into a project like that into any of your books? So it varies. It varies on the project itself. Um, November, I wrote four books in the month of November because mm -hmm. it was NaNoWriMo and it was a writing competition. It, you're basically competing with yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's to write uh, about 1,600 words a day. And uh, it's National Writing Month. And the premise is you can write a whole novel in one month. But I'm a short story, short story girl. I haven't broken into novels yet, even though I've got four books that I want to write this year that might break into the novel in different genres, fantasy, romance. I'm breaking into different genres this year, hopefully. Um, so, but the reason why I'm giving um, Heaven Has Mail all the way till November is because I want to push it throughout the year so people have plenty of time to write and to really, uh, there's some folks that may be still struggling with their loss mm -hmm. and not ready to write those letters. And I want to give them a chance to have those moments if they do want to write that letter. So I'm giving that time. Some projects are really short. Uh, I told people the beginning of November about hold on to your soul. I said, I've got nine slots who wants to tell their survival story and become a part of this book. And all the way down to the day before we went to publish, I was still typing words in that book. So um, that was a 30-day project. So it, it really depends. My children's books, I can write the whole story in one day, but going back through the process of actually developing it into a full book would could take up to a month, maybe even longer. Pawpaw's series, the first one took me a year. Oh, wow. <laughs> And that's yeah. one of the things that I'm always impressed with when writing is the different processes people go through. For me, again, and I've never wrote anything uh, long form like that. I, I've done some blogging, you know, I, I had to do, uh, I have my master's, so I had to do a bunch of case studies and that type of stuff. My strategy for any type of writing I've ever done is to not overthink the first draft, write everything out, just go and blast words out. doesn't matter. Don't worry about length. Don't worry about clerical errors. Don't worry about anything like that. And then step away for however long I got, you know, the, the closer I get to my deadline, the less time I have to do that, obviously, but uh, step away and then come back, read it with fresh eyes and start editing it down and then add in words here, make the structure better and all that type of stuff. Cause I find that a lot of people try to do that all in one go. And that really, really hurts them when they're writing. You know what I mean? So I completely can understand how something could take a year or several months or whatever, or you got those starving artists who just write their life's work uh, for their entirety of their life. And then they find it after, you know, they pass away and they find it in their belongings. And like, holy crap, this guy was a genius and he just never puts this out, you know? So, so <laughs> yeah. thankfully that's not you. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of people like that. And I usually don't set deadlines for books. Um, I just start writing an idea comes to me. I'll have a dream and then I'll wake up. Uh, sometimes I'll wake up at midnight or one o'clock in the morning and I'm like, man, that's a great dream. And I'll write down <laughs> the premise on a word document. I'll create a folder for it. And if it, really draws me to go back and write more about it than I will. You know, that's how the ro the book, the romance, I've never thought about writing romance ever in my life. But when my kids were right on their way home, I had this idea that popped into me, it popped into my head. And I'm like, oh my God, that's a great story. So I'm going to give it a go this year and, and try to do that. And that's why I chuckled there when you said that, because I'm picturing your husband, you know, laying next to you and it's one o'clock in the morning and he wake up. Oh, my God, it's a great story. He's like, what are you talking about? He's like, I'm trying to sleep here. What are you doing? 
he's so used to it. He's just like, yeah, that's her. Yeah, I'm up and down all throughout the night checking or, or I'll have an idea and I'll have to write it down. Or some nights I'll sleep all the way through like a baby. I'm I'm one of them people that I'm just a little spastic all over the place doing this out or the other. And that's how my brain works. It doesn't go like this. It goes boom, 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 boom. Yeah, I, I'm very familiar with that. I, I can have definitely been there a lot of times with my thinking. And sometimes these conversations, if you watch any of my other episodes, you'll see that. You're like, where did he even connect that? I don't know what he's doing there. So I can relate. I can definitely relate to that. And so one of the, this is a funny story. I don't know if she'll, she'll get mad at me for telling this, but I think it's funny. So I'm going to tell it anyways. Um, so I have a weird history of doing things while I sleep, just like really random things. And I'm still asleep. I don't wake up to do them. I just sleep. And so one night I'm sleeping uh, with my girlfriend and in the middle of the night, I just reach out and I grab the pillow she's sleeping on and she's still kind of awake. She's like, hey, babe, what are you doing? And that's my pillow. And I just slowly start pulling it from underneath her head, like at a really ridiculously slow rate that she's like, is he messing with me? Is she he joking? And I just pull the pillow out from her eventually to her head, like, and plops into bed or whatever. And then I just curl, cuddle up with the pillow and then go back into a deep sleep. Wow. <laughs> so so I can definitely relate to doing all kinds of things in the middle of the night and stuff like that. But she brings that story up all the time because she was like, it was at such a slow pace that it was hilarious at some point. She's like, what is going on? This is nuts. See, she must have nerves of steel because I would have thought you were going to smother me with it. I would have left. I would have been like, I'm sleeping on the couch. I'll see you in the morning. No, she knows she knows how much I love my pillow. She knows that I wouldn't uh I would never hurt one of my pillows by trying to commit murder with it. I'm like, no. Because it oh man, that was a, such a random thing uh to to remember now. But that was I had Oh, like seven or eight pillows on my bed. And I'm not like one of those people who does decorative pillows. They were all used in different uh, situations. Yeah. And, you know, I just had a bunch of different pillows. And so throughout the early parts of our relationship, we went pillow shopping way too often for what is a, uh, you know, 30 some year old man who, who lives by himself. And you're like, why are you buying so many pillows? And why do you take me all the time to buy pillows? So she, I think that's the only thing that made her feel safe. She's like, there's no way he'd hurt one of his pillows by trying to kill me with it. There you go. There you go. That's a keeper. So, well, so thank you so much, CJ, for coming. I really appreciate you coming on here and sharing all the different stories. And uh, I'll make sure that I link to your, your, uh, your book page and everything in the comments as well as your other stuff. Tell us a little bit more about uh, the podcast that you do and where we can find you. Yeah, so I actually do three different podcasts. <laughs> I told you my brain, pew, 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 everywhere. <laughs> so the Sister Sister Live Show is the one that I do. It's our channel. We call it a channel because we have uh, other ladies that do uh, shows on the channel. But Saturday is our show where we bring on people who are doing wonderful things in the world, whether they're entrepreneurs, nonprofits, whatever they're doing. If they're bringing some type of light into the world, we want them on the show because we want to give them a platform to shine. And we also, my sister goes out into our hometown community of Indianapolis, Indiana and feeds the homeless. So that's our sister, sister live show. And that's the one we write all of our hope books for, because what we're hoping to do is open up, whether it be a food truck, a delivery food truck or a house, mm -hmm. uh, we're still figuring that out to help people get off the streets because that's one of our passions is to help people um the the folks that you know get left behind out there on the streets for one reason or the other we want to help them get back home and then i have the author show me and another author went in on this because there's so many authors looking for um places to be seen out there we want to give them another spot and it helps us collaborate with them and kind of learn their process and and talk to them as well as you know just make those connections with other authors because i found the author world to be one of the most amazing worlds ever and the most um accepting worlds as well mm -hmm. and then uh, on the sister sister live show channel every monday at 7 a.m ish 
you can find me doing CJ in the morning. I do faith-based motivation. It's just a 15-minute motivational talk with me just giving you a topic to get your whole week started. That's awesome. It's incredible. And I'll make sure I link all those in the show notes for this and everything. So again, thank you very much for coming on here. And I'll make sure that I shoot people your way so they can come check out more of your story. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Brandon. I appreciate the authentic conversation. It's been a blast. Awesome. Thanks for checking out Starting Nowhere. If you stuck around this long, go ahead and subscribe if you aren't already.